the transformed Christian mind ought to routinely think about heaven. As Christians, we ought to catch our thoughts drifting to the land that is fairer than day. After all, the psalmist said, Who have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. It is Solomon who writes in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity on the hearts of men. The Apostle Paul teaches us in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the author of the Hebrew letter that reminds us that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. You read throughout the sacred book and God's people seem to be longing for God's heaven. That makes some sense, doesn't it? After all, our God is there. Our Savior is there. Our spiritual siblings who have passed on are there. Our friends and family members who have died in Christ are there. Our home is there. Our inheritance is there. Our treasure is there. Yet the reality is, we spend a lot of time thinking about something else other than heaven. We spend a lot of our time thinking about earthbound issues. We think about money or the lack of it in our bank account. We think about the need to diversify our financial portfolio so we can retire early and enjoy life. We think about wearing the latest fashion on the first day of school. We are consumed with thinking about where we're going to go to college or landing that new job or driving that new car. We find our mind daydreaming about the possibility of marriage and raising a family. We think about our own physical health. We are consumed with thoughts and activities and events of our children and grandchildren. And that seems to dominate and occupy the thoughts that fly across the screen of our minds. Oh, we think about shopping and sex and sports. In fact, we even count down the days until the start of a new college football season. We think a lot about a lot of things. But I wonder when was the last time we spent a lot of time thinking about heaven. You'll have to excuse me this morning because I've got heaven on my mind. Today we come to the end of our eight-part sermon series entitled Preaching Christ. All summer long we have been lifting up various examples from Genesis to Revelation of how uh, Christ is the centerpiece of all of scripture he's not only the author but he is the subject matter from beginning to end we have seen that all of scripture can be seen and come into focus through the lens of christ and him crucified so we lift up examples of preaching christ in the pentateuch and in the psalms and in the prophets we have seen preaching christ in the gospels and the parables acts and the epistles and here today in the book of Revelation. From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, 
The only way we can make sense out of the Bible, the only way we can make sense out of life is to see it through the lens of Christ and Him crucified. So this morning I invite you to go to the back porch of the Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. I want to read in your hearing verses 1 to 8. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 8, as together we will have heaven on our minds. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God. And he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This revelation belongs to Jesus. John is merely the recording secretary. We are told in Revelation chapter 1 that John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. In other words, it was Sunday and he was getting his praise on. He was simply worshiping the Lord. And in that moment, John says, I heard a voice. John turns around and it's none other than Jesus the Christ, the living one. And Jesus says to John in Revelation chapter 21, What you see, write this down and give it to the churches. This revelation belongs to Jesus. And Jesus has given this revelation to his church. We come to the opening line of our passage. And we find three familiar words. Then I saw. In the previous three chapters, that three-word phrase has now been found seven times. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is draped in mystery and shrouded in symbolism. You and I both know that the number seven is the number of completion. And so now, for the seventh time, as the reader, we've heard these words, then I saw. 
You read of it in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, chapter 19, verse 17, chapter 19, verse 19. You also read of it in chapter 20, verse 1, chapter 20, verse 5, chapter 20, verse 11, and here for the seventh time, chapter 21, verse 1. It's the number of completion. Then I saw what John was seeing was the unfolding of eschatological events. Jesus was showing him what would eventually take place. So John talks about seeing Jesus mount his white horse and enter into battle. Seeing Jesus decisively defeat the devil, the beast, and the dragon. Seeing Jesus set up his kingdom for a thousand year reign. Seeing Jesus establish that great white throne of judgment. Just to name a few things. And John says then I saw all these things. But the ultimate vision that John saw comes in this seventh occurrence of that three-word phrase. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. This is very reminiscent of what the apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Where he says, the present heaven and earth is reserved for fire on the day of judgment. When God will judge the wicked men. What Peter writes coincides with what John sees. That this first heaven and first earth have passed away. And now God is doing something new. It is something restored. It is something regenerated. It is something recreated. He is doing something new. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This word new is not just new in chronology, but new in qualitative substance. There's something new. There's something different, something similar, but something drastically different about this new heaven and new earth. John gives us the first clue when he says there was no longer any sea. Now that's significant because on this marble called planet Earth, it is three-fourths covered by the sea. All of our weather patterns are dictated by water, by the sea. There is evaporation, there's condensation, there's precipitation. That cycle goes on and on and on, over and over and over again. Even within your body, blood is 90% water. Your body is 65% water. There is water all over the place. In fact, in this ecosystem, you and I cannot survive without water. We may be able to go a few days, but we can't go much longer because we have to have water. Water is an absolute necessity in this world. What John is saying is that in the world to come, the absolute necessity is Christ. The only reference to water that we find in these last couple of chapters of the revelation of Jesus occurs when John sees the river of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb and it's cutting straight through that great new city of Jerusalem. The only reference to water is this reference of that it's coming forth from the throne of God. So that in that world, the only way you survive is through Christ. 
Just as in this world, water is a necessity, so in the new heaven and the new earth, Christ is the necessity. Without Christ, you cannot survive in the new heaven and the new earth. There is no longer any sea. Now, this is something that has caught the attention of more than one theologian. Because they've said since Revelation is symbolic, and since this reference to no longer any sea is the first of seven no longers in chapters 21 and 22, maybe, maybe God is being very symbolic in this. Not only is there literally no water, but in the first century, the sea was a symbol of turmoil and tragedy. Because oftentimes the seas would wreak havoc upon humanity. And this is the first no longer in the last couple of chapters. Because when you get to verse 4 of our passage, there's no longer any death. No longer any grieving. No longer any crying. No longer any pain. You get to chapter 22, no longer any curse. Can I get an amen? And then ultimately, the seventh no longer is that there's no longer any night. One commentator said it this way, that in God's recreation of the heavens and the earth, he has purged it of all things sinful. He has taken all the joy stealers away. Because when you stop and think about it, the things that steal joy for us will no longer be in the new heaven and the new earth. I thought somebody would get excited about that, but that's okay because we're going to build today and it's going to get better as it goes along. But just stop and consider this. When John says there's no longer any sea, he's saying that the only sustenance is Jesus Christ and that anything in this ecosystem, anything in this world that brings pain and problems will not exist in the new heaven and the new earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down from heaven. He then says that he saw a new Jerusalem, a new capital city for this vast empire. I saw a new sacred city. He compares that city to a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. As he's trying to describe what he is looking at, he, he sees something that is perfect and something that is, that is vast. He says, I saw this new city and the new city was beautiful, like, like a bride adorned for her husband. Dr. Ted Sisk was the pastor that married Jane Ellen and me just a few years ago. And I'll never forget that Ted would oftentimes say, a woman is no more beautiful than on the day of her wedding or when she's nine months pregnant. Because it's in those two moments that she has a glow about her. And if you can visualize with me that what John sees is a city that is glowing and when he sees this city that is glowing and shiny and, 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 and everything is beautiful about it, he says, it's like a, it's like a, a wife beautifully adorned for her husband. And this city is perfect. It's a portrait of perfection. In fact, much of Revelation 21 is describing this perfect city of God. 
This perfect city is 12,000 stadia cubed. That's what John says later in Revelation 21. To say that it's cubed is to say it's the same distance in length, in width, and in height. Many have seen this as a perfect holy of holies. It's, it's a perfect, it's an image of perfection. It's just as long as it is wide as it is tall, 12,000 stadia. But do you know how vast 12,000 stadia is? 12,000 stadia is approximately 1,400 miles. So what John is saying is that this city, this new Jerusalem, is 1,400 miles long and 1,400 miles wide and 1,400 miles tall. If, if you stop and think about it, it's a city that spans the distance from New York, New York to Houston, Texas. That's a large city. What's the point? The point is that it's perfect and it's vast. So there's space for you and 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 there's space for you. You get it? There's space for you and there's space for you. There's space for anybody and everybody. It is so vast. It is, it is an enormous city and it's a perfect city. And to build on that perfection, then John hears the voice of God. Now the dwelling of God will be with his people. He will live with them. If heaven could get any better, it just got better right there. Now God is going to dwell with his people. This is the fulfillment of the greatest promise in the Bible. For repeatedly, God says to his children, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not abandon you. I will accompany you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And right now, you have to know that by faith. But in the new heaven and the new earth, in the new sacred city of Jerusalem, you'll know it by sight. Because God will dwell with his people. And in that process, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. I gotta be honest with you that for the longest time I, I read that sentence and I interpreted that verse as when I see Jesus, I'm just gonna be a blubbering mess. You know, I'll just be a hot mess and he'll have to come with a holy handkerchief and just kind of wipe away my eyes. And I, I thought to myself, the reason I'll be crying is because of missed opportunities, maybe, or because of sin that I've committed. Sins of omission, sins of commission, various things that I did that I should not have done, various things I failed to do that I should have done. In the very sight of all that, I'll begin to weep. For the longest time, that's how I interpreted that. And that does make some pragmatic sense until you remember a verse like Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Horatio Spafford is exactly right. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. So I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I think what John is doing is he's showing us what is not going to be there. There's no longer any sea and there's no longer any tears. What causes tears? Death, grieving, crying, pain. And in verse 4, he says, those things are no more. They're no longer here. There are no more tears in heaven. Just stop and think about that. In this, in this new heaven and new earth, there's no more sickness and no more sadness and no more setbacks. There is no more pain. 
There are no more problems. There's no more persecution. Remember, John is writing to churches and they're facing persecution every day, left and right. Persecution that you and I have no idea what it's like. And some of them were tempting to throw in the towel. And John says, no, don't, just wait. Because when you get to heaven, there will be no more persecution. There'll be no more agony. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more death. No more dying. There's going to be no more hospitals. No more cancer. There's no more heart disease. There's no more migraine headaches. There's no more depression. There's no more vomiting. There's no more diarrhea. There's no more need for home health nurses. There's no need for any of that that robs us of our joy and life in this world. There's no need for any of that because it's not there. In heaven, in heaven, death dies. In heaven, sickness ceases. And in heaven, grief is gone. Y'all better help me here because I'm about to have a holy sanctified spell. Because in heaven, none of that exists. Friend, we live in a world of some more, but we're going to the place of no more. We live with some more pain. We're going to the place of no more pain. We live with some more persecution. We're going to the place of no more persecution. We live with some more heartache. Going to the place of no more heartache. We live with some more disobedience. We're going to the place of no more disobedience. We live in a world of some more war. We're going to the place of no more war. We live in a world of some more discomfort. We're going to the place of no more discomfort. You and I are going to a brand new place called heaven. And God is there. And he wipes away everything that causes pain in this world. I think this caused John to drop his pen. I think he's so amazed, dumbfounded perhaps. Maybe he's even dancing a little bit, right? I mean, he's so excited about this. And God has to say to John, write this down. I'm not done. And then... The Lord says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is done. It's not the same word that Jesus used on Mount Calvary, but it is pretty close. It's not to Telestai where Jesus cried out, it is finished, when he was hanging on the cross on Calvary's hill, But it's a very similar meaning of a word where the Lord says, it is done. It is accomplished. It is completed. What needed to be recreated has been recreated. What needed to be regenerated has been regenerated. What needed to be restored has now been restored. It is done. And who did it? It is Jesus who did it. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In this vision, John sees what is not in the new heaven and the new earth. But he also sees who is in the new heaven and the new earth. Because Jesus says, to him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost. To him who overcomes, all this will be your inheritance. In other words, if you've ever wondered who is in heaven, let me just succinctly say it this way. The people in heaven are those who are parched for Christ 
And they know that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Everybody who's in heaven is a person who is parched for Christ and one who knows that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Now, Jesus said it with a few different words, but he said the very same thing. Jesus says, I will give drink free of charge, without cost, to anyone who is thirsty. You remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for that person will be filled. You remember his conversation with the Samaritan woman? You drink water from that well, you'll get thirsty again. You drink the water I provide, streams of living water will well up inside of you. Jesus is saying that if you come and follow me, you come and thirst after me, that I will get you access into heaven so that you will be sustained by the river of life that flows like a crystal sea through the middle of the sacred city of the new Jerusalem. This morning, let me ask you, are you parched for Christ? I mean, are are you thirsting after Jesus? Thirst is a powerful motivator. If you're thirsty, you'll do just about anything to get a tall glass of water. I mean, if you're really thirsty, if you're really parched, you'll do anything to get that. Oh, my friends, what Jesus is using is an analogy. And he's saying, are you parched for me? Do you thirst after me so that, so that Jesus is the object of your thoughts and Jesus is the affection of your heart and Jesus is the centerpiece of your life that Jesus is what you think about in the morning and what you aim to please throughout the day and Jesus is the last one you think about before your head hits the pillow? Are you parched for Christ? He says the people that are in heaven, who's in heaven, is a person who is parched for Christ and a person who knows, believes that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. He says to the overcomer, all this will be your inheritance. Now elsewhere in John's writing in 1 John chapter 5, He asked a great question. The question is, who shall overcome? And I love it in the Bible when the Bible not only asks the question, but answers the question. And in 1 John chapter 5, the question is posed, who shall overcome? And John answers that. Only he who knows and believes that Jesus is the one and only Son of God will overcome. That's where I get my phrase that if you're going to be in heaven, if you're going to heaven, it's because you are parched for Christ and because you know and believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. That's who's in heaven. That's only the ones that are in heaven. That's the, that's the way you get into heaven is to know who Jesus is. You remember elsewhere where John says in one of his letters that if you, if you have the Son, you have life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You want eternal life? It is to be parched for Christ. It is to know who he is. And he is the one and only son of God. To drive this point home even deeper and even further, John wants the church to know who is not in heaven. Did you catch that in verse 8? Who's not there? The cowardly? The unbelieving? The vile? The murderers? The sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, all liars, they're not in heaven. No, they are reserved a spot in the lake of fire. And this is the second death. 
John wants the church to know what Jesus is revealing to him. Jesus is showing him what is to come. And and he, he tells him, compared to this world, look, there's some things that are not in the world to come. There's no longer any sea. There's no longer any death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. No more curse. No more night. There's some things that are not in the world to come. And then who is there? Who's in heaven? It's the people that are parched for God. It's the people that that know that Jesus is the only true way unto the Father. He is the one and only begotten of the Father. It is only through Jesus that anybody gets to heaven. Well, then who's not there? The cowardly. That word cowardly means that they did not make it to the very end. They did not persevere. Remember, John is writing to an audience of churches where persecution is in front of them and behind them, to the left of them and to the right of them. And what Jesus is telling the church is that those who do not persevere to the end are not in heaven. Wow. Those who do not persevere to the end are not in heaven. I gotta be honest, this, this really, this really cuts across the grain of the, of the funeral sermons I've had to do where I have to stand up and the best thing I can say about the person in that casket is when that person was seven years old, he went to a camp or he went to vacation Bible school and he filled out a card and he, and he said a prayer. But other than that, we see no fruit from his life and now he's 83 years old and he died. And the family members ask me, where is this man? I don't know. But if I read Revelation chapter 21 right, this man didn't persevere to the end. You've got to persevere to the end. The perseverance of the saints is a grand, glorious doctrine. It is a promise from God. It's a responsibility of God's people. I want you to hear that clearly. The the perseverance of the saints is a promise from God. If you are in Christ, you will persevere. Okay? I want you to know that. If you are in Christ, you will persevere. At the same time, if you are in Christ, you must make every effort to persevere. You can't just sit back and say, I can do whatever I want. I can live as vile as I want to live because... I'll persevere to the end. No, the perseverance of the saints is a promise from God that those in Christ will persevere, but it's also a responsibility in your life and mine. We make every effort to persevere. That there is nothing that's going to deter me. There is nothing that's going to distract me. There is nothing that's going to keep me back from following Christ. That's the person who is parched for the Lord. So if you ever think to yourself, I will fizzle and fade to the very end like a sparkler on the 4th of July, friend, strike that image from your mind. You're going to go out in a blaze of faithful glory. That's how you're going to go out. You're going to go out more faithful to Christ on your death day than on your birthday. Because the people who are not in heaven, they're cowardly. They fell away. They did not persevere. There's a reason why John puts that title first. Because he's running to a church that's facing persecution. And he's saying to them, don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. You can make it. You can handle this. Remember what's in store for you. So don't stop. Keep on being faithful. Keep on pushing through. Keep on persevering. God is going to help you. God will not abandon you. You keep on. It's a, it's a sign of, of encouragement to the church. 
So the cowardly are not in heaven. The unbelieving are not in heaven. The unbelieving, what that means is a person who does not have faith in Jesus Christ. I find it ironic that Jesus doesn't say that the non-religious or the non-churchgoer, you know, you can be religious and you can be in church and not be believing. Can I say that again? You, you can be religious and you can be in church and still not be destined for heaven because you're not believing. You don't have a saving faith. You say, but pastor, what is a saving faith? A saving faith is faith that's exclusively placed in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God who came and down the cross for your sins, was placed in a borrowed grave, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead? And it's faith in that action that, go, that enables you to go from no faith to faith. If you possess that, you possess saving faith. And, may I add, that saving faith possesses you. So the unbelieving, they're not in heaven. Then he says, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral. Those are people who have a lifestyle that is so utterly selfish that they live life only to gratify themselves. They do not use their lips to praise the Lord. They use their lips to express vile words. They they do not honor one another. They murder one another. You remember what Jesus said? If you get angry at your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. The sexually immoral are not there. The sexually perverse are not there. And that's heterosexual, homosexual, whatever other sexual there may be. They are not there, not in heaven. And then he says, those who dabble with the demonic, those who are indulged in witchcraft, it leads to idolatry. The worship of something other than God, the one true God of the universe. And all of that is a lie. And if you worship a liar, eventually you will become a liar. Because we begin to act like that which we worship. So there are no idolaters there. There are no liars there. There are no people that worship the demonic there. Now, why would Jesus end this robust, powerful paragraph about heaven on such a downer? Why would he end it right there? Why would he? He tells us what's not in the new heaven and the new earth. He tells us who is in the new heaven and the new earth. Why don't he just stop right there? Why do you have to go another step further? Jesus always goes another step further, doesn't he? Jesus always goes another step further and he describes who is not in heaven. And why does he have to do that? Because it makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us kind of squirm a little bit. Why why does he have to do that? I'll tell you why he does that. Because he wants the church of the first century and this century to ask the hard question, do my habits reveal my holiness? Does my behavior reflect my belief system? Does my conduct coincide with my convictions? I find it interesting that Jesus does not describe any of these people who are not in heaven uh, based on their thinking process. He doesn't describe any of their bogus theology. He doesn't describe any of their, uh, of their, uh, of them being heretics, of not believing the right stuff. How does he describe them? By their actions. 
So somehow that tells me that how I live my life is pretty important to God. That how I live my, God, live my life, my habits must reflect my holiness. That my behavior must be in cahoots with my belief system. That my conduct, it must coincide with my convictions of who Christ is. Can I remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He goes through a laundry list of people who will not be there. Then he says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, And that is what some of you were past tense. That's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. To God be the glory. Some of us see ourselves in that laundry list of of vile descriptions and we say to ourselves, listen, I've done some of those things. I've been guilty of some of that, but that's what you were. You, my friend, you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. That's not who you are right now, but that's what you were in the past. And, 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 And this is what Paul said to the church. This is what Jesus reveals through John to the church. So you get to the very last chapter, the very last book of the Bible. You get to Revelation chapter 22. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is pleading for anybody to come. Are you thirsty? Come. Do you need forgiveness? Come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Because Jesus came to earth, and that's been revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation, because Jesus came to earth, he paved the way so that we may come to God through him. Come. Anybody, come. Anybody who needs salvation, come. Anybody who needs prayer, come. Anybody who needs hope, come. Anybody who needs help, come. Anybody who needs Christ, come. Anyone who is thirsty. Jesus says the spirit and the bride say, come. The reason he ends in verse 8 of this of this paragraph about the glorious splendor of the new heaven and the new earth is because he wants people to know with all certainty that they are coming unto him. Because when you come to him, you've got to come under his terms. You must be parched for Christ. And you've got to know and believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Because if you come parched, and if you come knowing that He's the one and only, it will impact how you live your life. And your habits will reveal your holiness. So this morning, may revival break loose. May this morning, uh, what started as amens, uh, they may be transformed into omas. And may this morning you come to this altar which is wide open. May you come unto him and say, Christ, please forgive me. Help me to be more parched for you than I'm parched for fill in the blank. Lord, let me be more parched for you. Let me be more consumed with you than fill in the blank. And anybody who comes to him by faith is accepted in his sight. 
thank you. Anybody who comes to him is accepted in his sight. Anybody who comes to him by faith is accepted in his glorious holy sight. Anybody who comes, let them come. The last image of Jesus in the Bible is an image of him with arms outstretched saying, come, come. There's room for you. Come, come. There's room for you. Come, come. There's hope for you. Come, come. There's help for you. Come, you come. Because of what Jesus has done, you can come to Christ. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. And Father, we do pray that revival breaks loose. We do pray that we will be a people of God who long to be holy, who long to be obedient unto you. So Father, um, as you move, help people uh, to be convicted of sin, help sinners to come to faith in Christ, help people to come and join this faith family. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.